Hello, Mississippi and abroad. Welcome to another edition of the Justify Your Existence podcast. Uh, I am Parrish Alford with the Daily Journal. I'm joined by Ivan Mazel. Uh, folks, uh, you may recognize his name from ESPN, uh, Sports Illustrated, some places he's worked previously, now with the On3 Sports Network. Ivan, how are you, man? Parrish, I'm great. I, I really appreciate you having me on. Well, I'm glad uh, glad to have you on to talk about uh, a very important topic that's not college football, and uh, and we'll get to some college football too. But uh, if you would tell us a little bit about uh, on three and and uh, you know what's what's going on there. On three is a new uh, website dedicated to college sports football. Uh, first and, and basketball second, if, if you're asking me to rank them, but we're going to cover them both. And uh, we turn the lights on August 1st. If you have any, you know, if you follow rivals.com, if you follow 247sports.com, the guy, the business guys behind on three are the guys who started those two websites and made them profitable and sold them for lots of money. And they came to me uh, within the last year after I announced that I was not staying at ESPN and asked me to go, let's start a new website. And we talked and talked and worked it out. And uh, I have great belief in their ability to uh, run the business and they have belief in my ability to go out and tell stories. Uh, you know, we're going to be, we're very heavily into the recruiting space. Uh, that's behind the paywall. I'm out in front. I'm the carnival barker trying to get people into the tent. And, uh, yeah. and, and of course, as you know, some Ole Miss fans may realize, we are also in the team site game. Uh, we, we are either creating or buying team sites uh, at the big schools around the country, and they will funnel content and traffic to us, and, and we'll do likewise to them. Now, you grew up in Mobile, correct? Is I it, did. Right. Okay. And um, I, I know that uh, your beat for many years has been national college football, but uh, how did you come to settle uh, in the Northeast? I married a Yankee. That, that will get you there. <laughs> That's the entire story. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I worked uh, in the right out of college. I worked in Manhattan and New York, and, and uh, Meg and I met there. And uh, she, I think after Max was born, after our second child was born, she, we were, I was working at the Dallas morning news and Meg said to me one day, well, I think we should live in the Northeast. And, and I said, I don't. And, <laughs> and, and Meg said, well, you're not home. I'm the one who's home. So we need to be where I want to be because I'm the one who's there. And, and that was, uh, about 30 years later, I still don't have a good answer for that. So that's why I live in Connecticut. Well, I, I, there's there's a lot of logic there, probably a lot of discussion <laughs> along the way, but I can I can see the logic there. Yeah. You bring up Max. Uh, I would like to talk to you about Max. I know you've just uh, written a book. I keep trying to catch his eye. Uh, Max uh, took his own life. And uh, I know September was uh, Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Ivan, this really got on my radar because uh, our new, young, and talented uh, Mississippi State beat writer, Stefan Kreischnick, 
uh, who comes to us from the Big Ten. He's uh, an Indiana guy. Uh, he wrote about the relationship between MSU coach Mike Leach and the Helensky family. Um, their son, Tyler, played Washington State uh, for Leach and, and took his own life as well. And uh, in reading that story from Stefan, Mark Helensky kind of uh, redirected some thinking that I think a, a lot of people have. And, and he spoke of suicide as a byproduct of uh, poor mental health, uh, that Tyler was actually suffering from an illness like one might suffer from cancer, like you, you don't commit cancer. You know, it's, it's not right. a choice. Uh, you've gone through this with Max, uh, your second child now, and, and who you write about uh, in the book. Well, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think Mark is, is spot on, Parrish. You know, it's, it's an illness. And we, <clears throat> excuse me, we as a society need to treat it as an illness. We're getting better about that. And I think the analogy to cancer is spot on. You know, I, I, my parents' generation, the immediate post-war generation, and really before that, you didn't talk about cancer. You know, you you sort of whispered it, and it it was it was just not done. And look look at us now. You know, we, we've brought cancer out into the open. We've made incredible strides against it. And that's what we need to do with mental illness. I think you know the line I used in the book is mental illness needs sunlight. Uh, you know, and granted, we all grew up uh, with mental illness having a stigma. Uh, and I just decided early on after Max disappeared uh, that I was not going to deal in that stigma, you know, that we weren't ashamed of Max in death or when he lived. And, and if somebody chose to uh, use that stigma or employ that stigma. That was that was a reflection of them. That was not what you know, we weren't going to handle it that way. How hard was it to make that choice that you weren't going to recognize the stigma? I, I know you had to get Meg on board. I, I, that's that's a family decision, I, I'm sure, and the, the girls as well. How hard was it to uh, to to reach that? It was actually done out of self-preservation, you know, in the, the first days. And Matt, I, I used the verb disappeared a minute ago. Max, we didn't recover his body for eight weeks. And uh, he walked out onto the surface of Lake Ontario in Rochester, New York, in the middle of the winter. And, and uh, you know, we, we didn't recover his body until the water warmed up. So... Uh, in those first days when he had disappeared and we didn't know what happened, look, it's all you can do to put one foot in front of the other. And the last thing I wanted to have to keep up with was, well, who did, who, who knows about this? You know, who's got top secret clearance, you know, you know, how much, you know, are we going to tell the second cousins? Are we going to tell, you know, friends, you know, that was too much work. So it was, completely done out of self-preservation you know that i at that point and and now i don't care if people have you know if they treat it with stigma that's not important to me and you know i don't i think it's dumb but it's not important to me well i i, I read that in the book and and trying to decide who to tell and how much to tell and 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 the burden that that could be and trying to balance sure. that and remember who knows what and all of that and 
you know, and just all of a sudden within, within a day or, or days dealing with things that you never thought you would deal with before uh, and that sort of thing. You know, we, we trade in information and uh, you know, right. when, when uh, <laughs> trying to remember who knows what uh, that can be very challenging. Uh, tell us about Max, please. I mean, you write about a young man, the son of a sports writer who had seemingly a, uh, little interest in sports, at least from playing, uh, you know, and, and, and I relate to that uh, with, with my daughter, Emily, uh, you know, I've I worked really hard. I worked really hard. And, you know, her first word was not, uh, not uh, daddy or mama. Uh, her first word was touchdown with the appropriate signal. And, and uh, I was, I was proud of that. Well and uh, I was able to get my son to name uh, all 12 sec schools when, when they were 12, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, at a very early age, and his mother replied, "Hey, why don't you? Uh, uh, that's great. Teach him his letters now." Uh, but tell us about Max, please. Well, I, I'd be happy to. You know, Max. I, I said I used to say, and well, still do. You know, he was proof that God had a sense of humor that he had no interest in sports. You know, I just naively assumed that uh, he'd learned to read. You know, on the sports pages and. Uh, the, the way that I did and that he'd learned to do division by doing earned run averages the way I did. Uh, not the case. Uh, you know, we, I, I was able to uh, instill in him, you know, my love of, of humor, my love of slapstick, of wordplay. Uh, we had, a, we had a bond there. Uh, he was uh, a very shy kid uh, somewhere on the spectrum, as we say, you know, was never diagnosed with anything uh, as severe as autism, but he had trouble with social cues and he had trouble connecting with peers. Uh, he was shy, uh, very smart, um, loved, uh, grew as he became an adolescent, uh, loved, loved photography. And in fact, that's what he was majoring in at RIT in, in Rochester, New York. Uh, loved theater. Uh, you know, we tried because we live an hour from Manhattan. We tried to get the kids, our three children interested in plays, thinking that the best people in the world who do this are an hour away. So let's let's avail ourselves of that. Max really took to it. And not that he God no ever wanted to perform, but really liked musicals, really liked comedies. And, uh, you know, we bonded over that too. Um, he hated having his picture taken. And the photo on the jacket of the book is a, Max had an assignment at RIT in a class to take his photo for a book jacket of his photography. That was the assignment. And that's the photo he turned in. Uh, and, and obviously the listeners can't see it, but he, it is a picture of him from behind looking out onto Lake Ontario from a pier. And I, I love the fact that now with this book, he is not only a published photographer, but we can say that he completed the assignment for class. You mentioned in the book that he had to overcome uh, wearing glasses. Uh, while taking photography and that that yes. was a, a little bit of a hindrance that contacts uh, weren't working for him. Uh, tell us how he got there, how he overcame that obstacle. 
Well, it was, uh, it, it was hard for him, you know, and uh, he, uh, you know, in fact, the, not only did he have to deal with that, but he was on, you know, he was being treated for depression uh, at the end of his life. And, and I'm not, you know, that's, that was, again, on the, on the discussion of mental illness, you know, he was, you know, I've been treated for depression, you know, so that's, uh, neither here nor there, except for the fact that the medicine he took gave him a bit of a hand tremor and, you know, you don't want to be a photographer with a hand tremor. So, uh, they put him on a med another medication, uh, right at the end to lessen the hand tremor. And there's some belief and I don't, it, that the two medications he took didn't mix very well and might've contributed, you know, it's all speculation. I don't really know, but the, there's some evidence that in some patients that happens too. So it's just, uh, it's too bad. He was a very good photographer. We have a couple of his photos hanging in our house and uh, didn't like to take pictures of people uh, for the same reason he didn't like, you know, because he was shy, uh, but he was a really good landscape photographer and, and good at it seeing shapes and images that the naked eye didn't normally pick up. You write them to the book about an unidentified learning disorder. And uh, if that was not identified, uh, I I'm wondering, uh, was, did, did you guys potentially miss a sign of, uh, of depression or miss some things that uh, Max was dealing with? Uh, is, could, could that have uh, helped prevent something, do you think? Well, I think we did everything we know to do. We, we could have done as parents. You know, look, Parrish, uh, yeah, we have gone through a million what ifs. And, you know, the, the, the worst part of what ifs with a child who has died is that, you know, if you have what ifs with your with your living children, you you get a chance to compensate or, or make amends or, or continue your relationship and our memories and our interactions with Max, there is a finite number. Uh, but, you know, he was being treated by the mental health center on at RIT. Uh, they didn't think he was uh, suicidal to the point that they needed to intervene he had a psychologist at home that he saw over winter break who thought he was doing great. So was there, you know, was Max misleading us? Uh, was his uh, spiral downward sudden? It's impossible to say. I, I have a, a woman I grew up with who is on the faculty at, at Duke university who uh, deals with children who have dealt with uh, terroristic trauma. She worked at Oklahoma State when the Murrah building was was uh, blown up, you know, in the 90s. And she called me the week Max disappeared. And she said to your question, unless someone tells you what they are going to do at this time and date at this location, you cannot stop them. And you have to understand that as you look back at your interactions with him and as you look at what he did, you are looking at it with a rational thought process. 
And at the end, he was not thinking rationally. He was thinking irrationally because he was ill. And that really say that that conversation saved me and saved the four of us a lot of angst and a lot of, of heartache because it was, uh, well, it's the truth. That's, that's how mental illness works. I know Ivan, that when this happens, we, we all want to know why we want to know how it happened, why it happened, how it could have been different. And, and you write about some, uh, visits to the school and some interactions with the school and, and those who were helping Max uh, after the fact. And you just brought this up that uh, they didn't believe or his psychologist did not believe that he checked the suicide box enough to intervene. And, and that sent off a, uh, a warning bell for me. What, what is, you know, enough to intervene? How, how do they arrive at that? And, you know, as, as parents, uh, I, I'm sure your initial thought there was, you know, why, how could you not uh, let us know? Um, sure. What uh, what were those conversations like? Well, it was really interesting. And, you know, to their point, uh, to the first point, suicidal ideation, they call it, you know, the, the, the getting to the point where you're going to act. The, the psychologist at RIT told us, of asking Max, you know, do you have a plan? Uh, that's a big, that's a big warning flag if they have a plan. And Max said he did not have a plan. Uh, in fact, he had already begun to, uh, he, he did have a plan. He just didn't tell them. All right. Uh, because we, were able to get into his laptop after he died. And, you know, the, and he, he had, uh, you know, he, he had, there was at one point he was going to try it and the weather was so bad. He just decided, he, you know, he couldn't dig his car out. That's what it was. That was an awful winter in, in the Northeast. Um, and uh, what, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember the other question. Well, uh, the ideation and what was the other one? Yeah, that that, that was it. I, I guess uh, just where, you know, did, did you guys have a, uh, a, a, obviously you felt like you should have been contacted initially. Oh, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's a fascinating dilemma uh, for any university physician or psychologist because uh, they are adults. You know, they are legally adults. So um, they don't have to contact the parents and the doctor has to decide, uh, it, am I betraying the trust of my patient if I contact the parents? Now, obviously, if there is danger to life, then I'm sure they contact the parents, but there, it's a gray area. And, uh, you know, they believed that, based on what Max had said, that he wasn't far enough along that they should, you know, get to DEFCON 5, you know. So, um, look, you know, we all whiffed on that one. And uh, I'm sure they feel great remorse, as do we. Uh, but we were all, you know, we were all in there doing the best we could. You use the the terminology in the book, uh, 
demystifying grief, demystifying grief. Yeah. What is it about grief that, uh, that we don't understand? And, and after going through the process, and I'm sure continuing uh, in the process, uh, what, what do you think we need to understand better about grief? I think in American society, we're all scared to death of grief. I mean, I was, you know, I certainly was uh, because it's painful. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm great at conflict avoidance. I'm great at pain avoidance. Uh, it's one of my big talents. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I didn't have a choice at this point. You know, the grief was thrust upon me at age 55. And, you know, up to that point, I, w- I stiff-armed grief. I wouldn't deal with it. I didn't deal with it well when my father died. Uh, I didn't, uh, uh, I just didn't, I didn't want to know anything about it. And if, uh, if my friends were grieving, I was really ham-handed in how I dealt with them, if I dealt with them. You know, I, I would do the classic, I'm really sorry. And in my mind, I would check that box and I would move on. And I wouldn't bring up the, the deceased again. Uh, and, you know, and, and to people who would say to me, uh, well, I didn't want to bring him up. You know, and I, I would give them a big smile just so they'd know I wasn't trying to say this meanly, but I wanted to make the point. I'd give them a big smile and I'd say, well, yeah, you know, if you hadn't have brought him up, I wouldn't have been thinking about him. You know, I mean, that's all you think about. And, yeah. and to my point a minute ago, when you have only a finite number of memories, you want to talk about him. You know, people bring you memories. Uh, talking about him keeps him present. You know, we had a, we had a book party in my hometown of Connecticut uh, the night of the book publication, and Max's fourth grade teacher came and she told me a great story about him in the in a uh, class play that I missed because I was out covering a game somewhere. You know, that was just that made my night. Yeah. So uh, grief, you know, what I learned about it specifically, Paris, is that you you can't you've got to you have to deal with it. That if you, you don't get it out of your system when you want it to come out, then it will come out when it needs to come out. And that may not be convenient to your life when it, you know, forces its way out. Uh, so I did it by typing into my laptop, you know, a lot of days. Uh, my wife, Meg, did it by, you know, obsessively look, turning over every rock between our house and RIT 400 miles away to try to figure out what had happened to Max and, and where he went, you know, just where did everything go wrong? I didn't need to know all that. You know, Meg did. And God bless her. That's what she needed to do. Um, so the, you just, you have to do it, you know, it's, it's, uh, whatever it is, but you know, that's, that's what worked for me. Now in the family, there uh, are Meg and, and two girls, uh, have, has everyone kind of healed together? Has, have, uh, have people dealt with this differently on different timetables? What, what is the family like? Yeah, we're, uh, thank you for asking Sarah and, and Elizabeth. Sarah was, Max was the middle. 
Uh, Sarah was two years older, Elizabeth three years younger. They uh, technically live in California, although since the pandemic began, they've been mostly in our house in Connecticut, working in California, quote unquote. Um, they and they did it differently than than uh, Meg and I did it. You know, Sarah went straight to a grief counselor. Uh, Elizabeth is just much more private than that. But and I, you know, and and I just said I said to them what I said to you. I don't care what you do, but you got to do something. You know, you need to you need to address this. Um, but they're you know they're, they're doing well. I mean, we're all we all have scar tissue. And, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to understand what the girls are going through. I didn't lose a sibling, you know, and they are very, uh, you know, they're, they're very concerned about us because we lost a child. So it's just sort of a, we all try to keep an eye on one another and, and, and see how we're doing. You mentioned, uh, pecking away in a laptop riding. I, I'm sure that was, uh, in some ways, uh, therapy uh, during that time. My dad died last Thanksgiving morning, and uh, you know, I, I just uh, I started writing. You know, whenever I could get away, uh, a, a eulogy, an obit, a column, uh, just lots of things. Yeah. Um, what uh, What were your goals uh, in in writing this book? Well. That's a good question. I waited five years to write the book, mostly because I needed the perspective and I needed my legs back under me emotionally and and, and just in my day-to-day life before I could tell the story and tell it in a way that that was lucid, you know, right, where I wasn't just howling at the moon. Um, I wrote the book to because I didn't want Max to be defined by how he died. I wanted people to know who he was. And mostly I wrote the book because of, of how I, you know, what I learned about grief. You know, I, the, the phrase I use in the book is I wanted to be a docent and show people what my grief journey has been with the help that maybe they, it would help somebody, you know, the, because I know there are a lot of people who uh, treated grief the way I did and, and were not very good at it, are not very good at it. You know, the one thought that about grief that really crystallized it for me, Parrish, is that I realized early on that the grief wasn't going away, that I, what I had, my task was to learn to carry it and go on with my life. And the way that I learned to carry it was understanding that the the depth of the the amount of pain I had, the depth of pain that I felt was equal to the amount of love that I felt for Max. And once I sort of figured out that that equation, it just came to me that grief is love. Grief is the form that love takes. And it's a very painful form but it is the form that your love for that person takes after they die. And that just, just made my shoulders relax. And rather than fight grief, I just came to understand that this was what my love for Max was doing. You know, this was the form it, it had taken. And, and 
as time goes by, and, and you may have already begun to see this with your father, you find yourself, you know, the, the, the pain recedes for a few minutes or maybe an hour, or you may even catch yourself having a good day. And you learn that's, to me, that's learning to, you've learned to carry the burden. You know, the, the, uh, this, this answer will end, I promise, before the end of the show. But the one thing I wanted to say, the, the other thing I would say is, and this was a neighbor uh, who lost her husband suddenly uh, to a heart attack, said to me, and I think she might have gotten it off a greeting card, but, you know, grief is like standing at the uh, water's edge and sometimes it washes over your ankles and sometimes it washes over your head. But in both cases, it goes back out. And that helped me knowing, you know, once I began to have a good few minutes, a good hour, I would know, okay, this hurts right now, but it's going to stop hurting. And I would just sort of let it happen and lean into it. And it became easier to handle. I believe you, you wrote in the book as well, someone mentioned to you in, in, in helping you uh... – uh, deal with this. Uh, I believe the phrase was uh, grief is the price of love. Did I, did I read that? So, yes, uh, that, that is, a, that, that was said by a, uh, a priest in, in uh, LA that deals with gang members. Uh, yes. Yes. I remember that now. And, and yeah. that, that helps me relax about the topic. Uh, I, I thought that was uh, well-spoken. Uh, Ivan, tell people uh, where they can find I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, please. Well, uh, obviously, uh, it's available on Amazon because every book's available on Amazon, but it's wherever you buy books. You yeah. know, I, I'm going to be at, at Square Books on uh, Wednesday, November 3rd, 6 p.m. Uh, if you'd love to sign a copy for you there. Um, uh, do I have to tell them Square Books is in Oxford? Your people probably know that, don't they? <laughs> I think people around here, when you say Square Books, uh, you know, yeah. they, they, uh, uh, they, they got it. But yeah, and it's available at Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, Books A Million. Uh, you know, uh, if they can't find one, you know, send them to me and I'll send them one. Well, will you be covering uh, the, the Hugh Freeze return to Oxford game on the 6th or are you just coming down for Square Books? Well, I'm, I'm either, we'll either be there or I'll be at Alabama LSU since okay. I'm in the neighborhood. I'll be at one or the other. I'm going to wait and see what happens Saturday before I make a decision. Well, let's, uh, let's talk some college football a, a little bit here. Uh, Georgia looks really good. The best team, perhaps. Uh, do, yep. do, as, as fans, and, and I, I'm a fan of, of college football. You know, I, I cover uh, certain teams, but I think uh, we enjoy the sport enough to say that. Do we do we want that number one team to like be like the best, like nobody's close, or do we want something closer than that? You know, it seemed like last year Alabama, you know, had that great team and and uh, just just ran ran the whole table. Do, do fans like a Georgia team that that looks as good as this one looks right now? That's an interesting question, especially because you know the last two years we've had that. We had that with LSU in nineteen as well. Right, and, right. and as they are winning games, you don't really understand this is a team for the ages. It, it almost has to happen at the end of the year. I mean, right now Georgia looks like they fit that role, and I keep reminding myself about the the Heisman I awarded Leonard Fournette about this time in twenty fifteen. You know, 
there's there's some football left. But you know, I've seen that's my point. I've seen Georgia twice. I think they're really good. I think they're far and away the best team I've seen this year. Uh, I don't see any reason, you know, barring you know injury or something like that, that that they're not going to keep going. You know, the 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 quality of their and depth of their defensive play, at least it's certainly in the front seven. The fact that he's now got two quarterbacks that are capable of running the offense, you know, if and when JT Daniels gets healthy. Uh, it, it's the special teams are are really good. I mean, it, it's a complete team. And and especially in the year after the pandemic, when everybody seems to have everybody else seems to have significant holes somewhere, that's a that's a huge accomplishment. In, in this day and age of, of spread offenses, RPO, up-tempo, uh, teams running 100 plays, why is Georgia playing defense like this and nobody else is? I mean, it, this, this is like, uh, you know, they're the number one ranked team in this, uh, in this tempo uh, football era. Uh, the number one team, like, comes to us from the 70s. Yeah, I know. And, well, look, you know, we all know – that there are there are 130 FBS teams, and there are about 15 good defensive linemen that come out of high schools every year. When I say good, just NFL quality, you know, maybe or potential NFL quality. Defensive linemen are hard to find uh, who who can play at the level that the guys Georgia has plays, and you know. Uh, the, the best line I've heard about that this year is you know referring to Jordan Davis and that crew at Georgia's, where do you, where do you find defensive linemen like that? And somebody said, well, usually you find them in Tuscaloosa, you know, but, but this year, uh, this crowd, this group, Kirby smart recruited and they're, they're game changers. Uh, you know, they are just disruptive, uh, to be that big and to move the way they can move. It's astounding, and it's it's. I think that's the key to what has made Georgia so dominant. You know, people as as you allude to there used to talk about Alabama's defensive linemen in that way, and I'm, I'm sure they're still talented. But now they talk about quarterbacks and receivers. I mean, when you start rolling off yeah. a Jalen Hurts, uh, you know, Tua Tagovailoa, and and then Mac Jones, and and those receivers last year, what's what has been, in your mind, the uh, the key to Nick Saban's uh, consistency and staying power at, as a coach and reeling off these uh, these great teams? You know, it's remarkable to me, but the, the key to his consistency and staying power is his willingness to adapt. It's his willingness to change. If you remember when, when Hugh Freeze beat Alabama two years in a row, all Nick did was complain about, you know, with the famous line, is this what we want football to be? Right. But rather than continue to complain, he just went, oh, okay, that's what football is now. Then I'm going to beat you doing it that way. And, you know, and he, you know, he went out and, and, you know, picked up Lane Kiffin and, and, you know, Lane started it and, you know, the Alabama offense is just, continued uh, at a pace unlike everybody else. I mean, it, it's uh, – Nick is uh, – for being as autocratic as we all think he is, he's really open to new ideas uh, in football. you got to prove them to him, but he'll listen. You know, we he uh, he's not 
I was, I had a conversation with him this season about analytics and, you know, and he's, he, he'll listen to them. He doesn't buy into them wholesale, but he'll listen to them. And, you know, he's still, you know, his point about analytics was, well, those are great if you have the players who can take advantage of what they tell you, you know, if, if it tells you to go for fourth and one at, at uh, your own 40 yard line, that's great. If, if you can convert a fourth and one, if you don't have the offensive lineman in the back to do that, then all the analytics in the world aren't going to make a difference. And, you know, he's just very logical in, in how he thinks and he's not wedded to, his own ego in terms of, well, this is how I've done it. What, you know, how can I change? You know, he'll absolutely change. Yeah. I, I think Ivan, the, the, the yard line might've been the 30 a few weeks ago and, and it might've been for two. And, yeah. uh, and, and uh, it certainly was the second quarter. So you're saying that Nick Saban might not have attempted that uh, fourth down that Lane Kiffin did at that time. And he said that Parrish, yeah, I, I, I said it was my conversation with him. Full disclosure, I was it was on his radio show, but I was on I was on his radio show as a guest. So uh, I'm, I'm let me be clear about that. But it, that was two night. My point is that was two nights before Lane went for those fourth downs, which was such a dumb decision. Yeah, but oh well. Yeah, I, I, it was almost like. Okay, uh, you're close to midfield. Your offense has been good. You've kind of got this thing about going for fourth downs. You you have some body of work here. I will give you analytics there. But the second one was just reaching. Uh, It's like, man, I've got to do something or the game's going to get away from me, and we didn't come here to play close. We came here to win. I mean, that's what the second one looked like. But let's talk about Lane Kiffin's time, uh, his year and a half now uh, at Ole Miss. So what, what do you see there? Well, before I praise Lane Kiffin, the, the line I used to describe that in, in my game story was all gas and no brains. So, uh, uh, but Lane's done a great job. Uh, you know, uh, he's, he has injected uh, Ole Miss with, with, a, with confidence, you know, and, and, and I mean the entire half of the state that is Ole Miss. Or, or probably 60%, you know, that is Ole Miss. Um, uh, you know, he is in a class by himself as an offensive mind. Um, he's hired uh, smart assistants, you know. Uh, he's made Ole Miss uh, a destination in the SEC West, which has been historically hard to do. Uh, it, it's it's remarkable, and, and and he's still he's still Lane. He's still a just a unique guy, uh, endlessly entertaining for us, you know, that are trying to entertain our readers. Um, but uh, I'm I'm impressed with what he's done. Will he be the coach at LSU next season? Or who? <laughs> I'd be surprised. Yeah, I kind of would be as well. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you've covered coaching searches, man. You know how these things turn. They, you know, so yeah. No, I know. I, I, that would uh, it would help in the Lane Kiffin SEC bingo card, though. That would be three, right? You know, if he, if he, if he <laughs> and, and the question I was thinking about was uh, if it does in fact play out that way, 
what other SEC school would have so many coaches who have gone to other SEC schools? I mean, you know, yeah. uh, Jerry DiNardo went to Vanderbilt. I'm sure there's some history. You know, Steve Spurrier, it wasn't like right away, but, you know, eventually there was South Carolina. Lou Holtz was it too. But, you know, what other school, you know, would have – you know, anyway, it's it's a bizarre kind of a trivia that I know Ole Miss fans uh, don't want to think about and uh, and maybe they won't. Uh, the other half of the state there, uh, Ivan, what do you think of uh, Mike Leach at state right now? I know for years, you know, you would hear this while well, Mike Leach's offense uh, won't work in the SEC. Is a year and a half enough time to say that? Or, or, or what, what do you think uh, uh, when you see Mississippi State right now? Well, they've gotten better. You know, uh, they've gotten better over the year and a half. I, I still think it's too early. Um, uh, you know, the, on the one hand, they they I I was as everybody I was impressed with the way that they they beat A and M, and that was a classic, you know, Mike Leach offensive performance. You know, just uh, death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, and and um, but then you know Alabama just mowed right over them. So. I, I, it, I think it's it's early, but I think that there's enough. There are some signs there that 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 he's on the way. You know that they they're gonna keep getting better. It just seems to me, as I've watched both schools this year for the first time in my career, really going back and forth, uh, that they can be extremely efficient. That they can really, you know, hit some deep throws when they take those chances. Makai Polk, uh, the transfer from Cal, has been a a big get for them at receiver. And so often it, it comes back to uh, a turnover, uh, a penalty, uh, just efficiency. It comes back to uh, efficiency with them, as it does with a lot of, uh, of programs, and maybe that's part of the growth. You brought up the Heisman uh, a little bit ago. What does Matt Corral have to do to win the Heisman? That's interesting. I – uh, it's been an interesting year for the Heisman in the sense that by this point, usually somebody has begun to grab uh, the, the lead of the race. And I think Matt's performance against Alabama on that big stage set him back somewhat. You know, there's still uh, 60% of the season after that. And there's certainly room for him to grab the spotlight again, uh, but especially because I don't think anybody else has. You know, I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, last year, Devontae Smith really didn't, you know, that was mid-November, really, before people went, yeah, okay, he's the guy, he's having the season. Um, I wonder, uh you know, to your question, I mean, Matt Corral's just got to keep putting up big numbers and Ole Miss has to keep winning. You know, this is not – I don't think you – I think it's hard now for an eight and four quarterback to win. And we've seen, you know, that there is the matching expectations uh, or, or sur surpassing expectations candidate. And, you know, Matt may win it in that way, the way that Robert Griffin the third beat Andrew Luck, which I, you know, still think was a travesty. Uh, but Griffin, 
exceeded expectations and Baylor as a team did. And, and I think that's still out there for Matt Corral. I also think that it's, it's a year where a Jordan Davis at Georgia or a Kayvon Thibodeau at, at Oregon uh, could capture people's imaginations, you know, because nobody else has yet. Yeah. I'm, I'm always looking for that non-quarterback candidate to put on the ballot, you know, with three sure. names. It just, I mean, because I, I get that voting criteria and it still says best player in college football, not best quarterback. Uh, you know, so that's, that's yes. always a, an interesting uh, uh, dilemma uh, for me, but I, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau is really a, uh, you know, on my radar as well as Matt Corral and some others. Who's the best team in Michigan right now? Well, I was going to say Kenneth Walker the third at Michigan State is a you know probably the the running back I'm most curious about. Uh, I'm covering that game Saturday. Uh, the, it's in East Lansing. I have I have seen Michigan play, and I came away really impressed with their physicality and with the the. Uh, with, with the togetherness, for lack of a better word, because that program seems to, you know, the last few years, it just hasn't all been pulling in the same direction. But Jim Harbaugh revamped his staff. Uh, he's got a lot of really good young talent, and and they're good. But the fact that the game's in East Lansing, you know, I, I, I if I had to pick somebody, I'd probably say Michigan, just because I don't, I don't know that Michigan State's really beaten anybody yet, you know. Uh, and I'm, uh, uh, but, but I don't have a, I don't have a real good feeling about it either way. And I apologize for being that wishy-washy. <laughs> that's that's all right. That's all right. I've already done my my, my picks column uh, for the week. What did you? Uh, Who did you pick? I, I picked uh, Michigan State because I like the colors. You know. <laughs> so, oh, that's good. Yeah, that was, and Mel was, Tucker's done a great job. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you know another five or six seasons like this and people might forget what he did at Colorado, you know, the way he, he left town that way. But. Hey, it seems strange to get to uh, almost November and read about a quarterback competition at Clemson and uh, see them struggling to score like that. You know, if there was like uh, uh, the guy right after Nick Saban, if there was uh, anybody to challenge Nick Saban as like the coach and, and the level of consistency, I would have said uh, Dabo Swinney. Um, Absolutely. This is just kind of uh, proof that, man, everybody, uh, you know, has to rebuild every now and then. I mean, what, what's going on at Clemson? Well, it, you know, I, I'm, I've been looking back trying to figure out how did we all miss this? You know, wh what did we not see? And, and it's there. You know, they they have not been getting offensive linemen drafted. You know, it may be that, that Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne just covered a multitude of sins. Um, you know, the, the fact that the offense is struggling, you know, maybe it was that Tony Elliott needed Jeff Scott, that they were better as a pair than they have been individually because Jeff Scott's struggling at USF now. And, and um you know, the strength of Dabo's tenure at Clemson has been that that uh, uh, the way that he has pulled together a staff and that's been so insular and, and is, you know, been giving the same message day to day, week to week, year to year. Um, but I think it might be might have gotten a little stale. You know, Dabo's decision made 
out of what he thought was the best of reasons that you know he didn't want to he didn't want to screw up his culture uh, to not his decision to not use the transfer portal because those guys would not have been in his program's culture from the time they were freshmen has come back and bitten him in the behind because he lost quite a number of players to the portal and he didn't replace them and they're down bodies you know so it, it will be interesting to see how he pivots from here. You know, is he willing to make the changes he needs to make? Because if there's anything we know about Dabo, it's that he's loyal and and he's got to do something because it's not working right now. Do you think is is the uh, the portal the biggest answer there and and getting Clemson back? Is that the change he has to make, or are there other ways he can do the things he wants to do and get back to the level that he was? Well, I think that's an obvious change. You know, I, I'm not there to know how the culture is working in the office. You know, yeah. it, what's going on? Is is this, you know, is Tony Elliott, has the game changed enough and Tony Elliott hasn't changed with it? I, I don't know. Uh, is there something going on on offense? Are, are they recruiting the wrong guys? You know, but they, they, they can't block anybody. You know, I mean, the, the offense is just painful to watch, you know. Uyangalale is we know he's talented. We saw him last year. What he did against Notre Dame, you know, as an unschooled freshman was ridiculous. But he's lost his confidence. You know, he looks tentative out there. Uh, it's that they just, you know, it's almost like they need to, you know, take the eraser and wipe the board clean and start over. <laughs> 